Openness and transparency are key tenets of our justice system. But what happens when more and more information is locked behind a publication ban? In a first-of-its-kind investigation, reporters Adrienne Humphreys and Tala Hashmani looked into the rising number of discretionary publication bans in both criminal and civil cases. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Adrian joins me to discuss why more publication bans are being granted, how these bans intrude on the notion of open courts, and how that can erode credibility in the justice system. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Adrian, for listeners who may not understand how courts work in Canada, who may not follow it as closely as people in the media do, the courts in Canada operate on kind of a very basic principle of the open courts principle. But what does that mean in practice? What it means is quite literally the courtroom doors should be open and that people can come in, people can hear and observe and see what's happening, hear the justice being done, and then go out and tell people about it and tell people what they saw. And that's the open courts principle. And maybe in the days when this was emerging in sort of old Britain, you know, that's how people learned all their news. But today, it's usually journalists that go in and they're the eyes and the ears of the public. And they go through the open court doors and they sit and listen to the open court evidence. And then they tell the people what they saw and what was shown and what the evidence is on this very important community event inside. And that's the sound principle upon which our court system was built. There are some people out in the public, anytime there's a, a serious crime, there is a segment of the population who feel like, oh, we're just being nosy, we're butting in, where people don't belong, it's somebody else's business. But why is that an important tenet of our justice system? It's always been important in the sense that you want to know, like if your neighbor is not only found guilty, but also if someone is found not guilty, people want to have confidence that that person was either put in jail for very good reason, yeah. you know, robbed of their liberty, or perhaps even more concerning for many people is let out of jail for very good reason. You know, that person really isn't that predator or stole that money. And that, that they need to have confidence that both these results are based on sound information, logic, and good evidence that has been thoroughly tested, both by defense and the Crown. Despite the fact that we have an open courts principle, there are instances, though, where the public isn't allowed to know certain information. And I guess, you know, by proxy, the media isn't allowed to know certain information or report on certain information to protect the integrity of the trial. You know, I think of things like preliminary hearings. We can't report on those because that could possibly taint the jury in a case, details of bail hearings, and, you know, debates over whether evidence can be included in a trial. In, in Canada, we call them a voir dire, that essentially it's protecting the process. What are some instances, though, we're not allowed to know what's going on, or not allowed to, we're allowed to know as media, but not allowed to report what's going on, and why are those in place? There's basically three broad parameters or types of publication bans in Canada. Some of them are statutory. They're there by law. No one imposes them. Well, I guess technically the parliament has imposed them, mm -hmm. but you know, they're automatic. And those are some of the things you just beautifully captured. 
you know, to protect a right to fair trial. We, we, we don't report on the preliminary evidence because it hasn't properly been tested yet and there's not been open to cross-examination and rebuttal. And so we want to wait till we can really determine that and have it tested properly in open court. Then they get the mandatory ones that the judge must impose if they are asked for. And these are things like the identity of a victim of sexual assault. And that's that if the Crown or if the alleged victim in the court case or the victim in the court cases, whatever it turns out to be, uh, requests that, then that must be imposed. Mm-hmm. But then, and this was the focus of what I was looking at most carefully, was discretionary ones. These are ones where the judge has the discretion, the ability to grant or not grant if it, and to determine the appropriateness of the request and also the parameters of the request in terms of, for instance, is it a pub ban only until the end of trial? Is it a pub ban forever? Is it a pub ban against the whole trial, the whole testimony, or just an identity or this, that, and the other, you know, the, the parameters of those discretionary requests? Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that have sort of become more concerning in recent times. Yeah. Because they seem to be happening more often. And there is this feeling amongst a lot of justice uh, participants and observers that they are perhaps not being always used most appropriately. So you, for the National Post, did a little digging into how these discretionary bans are doled out. And what did you discover? Is it an increasing trend of judges handing out these discretionary bans more frequently? Yes. And if I may just back up marginally, one of the concerning things I found when I started looking at this was the fact that I couldn't find anyone that was actually already tracking this. So we have sort of a layer of secrecy on top of the secrecy, um, which was particularly disturbing. I assumed that law professors or uh, ministry of justices or court systems or some body, um, academics, published journals would have studies on pub ban use, and there was none readily available. So I, I tried to create my own. And, and my tracking, as much as I could, definitely showed quite a significant increase in the requests made for discretionary publication bans. Right at the end of my project, literally at the 11th hour, the Ministry of the Attorney General in BC gave us some data after six months of asking that completely backed up that finding. I mean, we found, uh, for instance, discretionary pub ban requests on the identity of witnesses and justice participants had steadily increased every, virtually every year over the last 10 years, except for the last year, which the courts were partially closed during COVID. So it shows this considerably consistent trend towards both more pub bans being granted, but more pub bans being requested. And this is increasing in both criminal court as well as civil court, correct? Correct. The BC data was just criminal, but the data that uh, the National Post accumulated uh, was both civil and criminal. Obviously, criminal court seems fairly obvious, but what kind of publication bans were people seeking in civil trials? One of the funny things I found is that a lot of people seem these days to want to sue someone but then sought a publication ban on preventing their identity from being known. (laughs) And that seems, you know, problematic in some ways. I'm sure there are some quite reasonable reasons or examples of why that might be appropriate. But as a general rule in courts and in life, you expect to be able to face your accuser. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're prepared to take the step of suing someone and making claims against them that they've done wrong, you, you know, unless they're sort of of a sexual assault variety or involving a child or something, um, you would kind of expect those, especially in the business disputes, to be open. 
Um, so that, that was a, a, an alarming one and, and a growing one. I kind of expected if anyone was going to be asking for identity bans in the civil part, it might be the defendants. You know, if you're running a hot dog stand and someone's suing you for serving bad meat, you might want to protect the name of your hot dog stand until you've found out whether there's any legitimacy there. So I kind of expected that to be reversed. That was a surprise. Now, how did you put all this together? And does your study cover all of Canada? Like I said, no one seemed to be tracking it in any, in any way. So I tried to find think think of a way, find a way that we could get a peek at it. I've been covering courts for many years, and I, I know that a lot of provinces have started to improve the transparency of publication bans. And uh, they've enacted these uh, notification systems where interested third parties and the media as a representative of the public is often notified to say that in this case, on this date, a publication ban asking for this has been requested, and it gives the media an opportunity to object. So if an accused serial killer is making a request for a publication ban that uh, a certain evidence can't be known or his name shouldn't be known or or that to ban reporters from the courtroom, all of things have sort of more or less happened in the past, the media could go and object and fight and argue and say why this is not an appropriate motion and then hopefully have it defeated and the public still has retains its standards right to know. So I use these notifications as a snapshot to get a, a taste of how many requests are being made. I was able to track through four provinces. Uh, I tried to get some representative provinces. Uh, so BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Nova Scotia wanted to do Quebec, but Quebec doesn't have a robust notification system like that. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a sampling of the nation, but it is, is, is not nationwide. We'll be right back. When we're talking about criminal cases, what kind of bans are we seeing? Is it pretty standard stuff? You know, we don't want to name an undercover cop because it might impede his ability to do his or her job. Or is it, you know, the kind of things you mentioned with civil trials where it's, we want to protect the identity of the person who's making this claim against this individual. Like what kind of things are we seeing in these criminal cases? There's a fairly wide range. And one of the other things is also that we don't always know why just from the notification. Sometimes the notice is just, you know, say we're seeking a, a publication ban in this case, and the notice doesn't say what it is. Identity bans were definitely a fairly big part of the process, although um, I'm, I'm just double-checking my numbers here. Actually, uh, identity bans are actually more uh, for civil than in criminal. One of the criminal defense lawyers said to me that's partly because there's no opportunity in the criminal system to protect the identity of the accused, although we've since found a couple of examples that that is actually (laughs) not the case, perhaps outrageously not the case. But often it's um, identity of witnesses, undercover cops, uh, the Crown loves to uh, seek uh, to protect the identity or hide the identity of the undercover cop. Often some witnesses might be say they're reluctant to come forward and uh, so that there'd be a publication ban request uh, on uh, information that may identify the witness. Those are certainly big ones. A lot of the ones also in civil court are for financial information, you know, the corporate disputes, rich people suing rich people. They don't want their income tax returns noted, you know, available to the public, things like that. Mm-hmm. They really range from, I, we just don't know what they're for. Heavily weighted, perhaps, to identity bans and some personal information. And sometimes it's as simple as um, a number of them are actually um, healthcare cases. You know, you talk about the range, some of them being quite understandable. I mean, health records perhaps shouldn't be public, and publication ban would be uh, extended over that. 
you know, a second ago you mentioned an instance where there was a publication ban involving the identity of an accused. What can you tell me about that case? Because that just seems like, I mean, it runs counter to the open courts principle, but it seemed it would run counter to public common sense or public sentiment. Like we'd want to know who is on trial for committing crimes against the public. Yeah, this is a most interesting case. And it is such a clear example, perhaps, of where some of the battle lines are being drawn or, or might be drawn over publication bans in the future. There's a lawyer in Newfoundland and Labrador. He's described as a prominent lawyer. And he's charged with sexual assault on a number of instances over a long period of time, starting when the alleged victim is 12 years old. So very shocking, very disturbing, very concerning matter of great public interest, especially to the people in his community. He is currently scheduled to have his trial next spring. And as it currently stands, the media cannot say who is charged with these offenses Hmm. because he and his blue chip team of lawyers put forth a very aggressive publication ban request that was initially granted. And then when it was objected to by uh, several media organizations, they successfully argued to have it overturned. But then their lawyers said, well, we plan to appeal this to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the judge then said, okay, I'm going to hold it being overturned. I'm going to delay that, the effect of that. So it's still currently under publication ban to give him time to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. If the Supreme Court decides to hear the case, then we might have a whole new way of doing business in the courts in Canada. Yeah, I can imagine it would be a massive change for how things are done. And, you know, I think people who follow cases like this through the courts, there's always an example of someone requesting a publication ban. We've had stories here in Edmonton where I'm recording where we've had to go and fight publication bans in court to be able to report on specific details of cases. And some of these cases in Canada are high profile. Like a couple that you mentioned in the story were Luca Magnata. He wanted the judge to completely ban reporters from the courtroom at his prelim hearing or Alec Manassi in the Toronto van attack. The Crown and Defence wanted his interrogation video under a publication ban. Why in that case would they ask for a publication ban? If it was shown in open court, why would they want the contents of it kept from the public? The argument was that it would taint future witnesses, that the defense may have intended to call some character witnesses or witnesses to bolster his not criminally responsible defense, and that if that witness knew the shocking, outrageous contents of his what he told police hours after he killed 10 people on a Toronto sidewalk that they may backtrack. It may affect their testimony or they may become reluctant to testify. That was sort of the stated reason. You know, there's always a lot also about, um, you know, courtroom tactics. I don't know about that case particularly, but in other cases, you know, lawyers have told me, so look, you know, I, I, why, why don't I want that on, you know, public? Yeah, because my client, <laughs> it makes my client look bad. Yeah. And so there's a variety of reasons for that. I mean, another pub ban issue that I didn't get to in my story regarding the Manassian trial was that the, one of the witnesses held the judge essentially hostage and refused to testify unless there was a publication ban over the video interviews that he did as a psychiatrist. And because of COVID, he was testifying from the United States remotely. He wasn't in Canada, so he couldn't really be ordered to. The judge couldn't hold him contempt and put him in jail until he agreed to testify. <laughs> and, and he won. Wow. And to this day, there's a permanent ban on the public ever seeing the interviews of one of Canada's worst mass murderers 
that was shown and uh, addressed and uh, spoken of in open court and used to uh, in his defense. So there's some. It's another really interesting sort of conundrum of publication bans, although perhaps unique to COVID. I am curious, though. I can imagine that some people out there in Canada might hear this or read your story and shrug and say, so what? What is the concern with having an increase in publication bans, especially discretionary publication bans, on court cases in this country? We're facing an unprecedented attack on the truth, really, right? Mm-hmm. We all know about the, you know, this fake news and the alternate facts and other views and actors who have a stake in diversions of events, uh, can, can push false narratives. If we can't report the truth, then the people won't ever really know what is the truth. If there isn't a dozen reporters, five reporters, one reporter sitting in a courtroom hearing and telling the world the actual evidence that was really heard and seen by the jury, then how will they know that when someone comes out and claims an inaccurate motive or inaccurate activities by either the prosecution or the defense, no one will know where the truth lies. And I think truth is so, so important. You know, open court's principle is called by the, the Supreme Court, like, you know, a hallmark of democracy. And there's a reason for that. Uh, when you don't have an open court system, the alternative is secret trials. Mm-hmm. And no one wants secret trials, no matter what side of the political fence you are. You don't want you or your colleagues or people you support or politicians you admire facing a secret star chamber where no one knows what the evidence is, and they can be silenced or jailed, like we've seen in other parts of the world. And we've seen the disastrous impact on democracy of closed court systems in other countries. And no one wants that in Canada, and we need to guard against that. And and that was one of the motivations for taking a look at this for my project. Does the fact that we report on news and it gets published in the digital sphere and seemingly lasts forever you know, it lasts a lot longer than than a piece of newsprint or a TV broadcast may have years ago. The fact that, you know, witness names are up on the internet forever, people are tied to these cases in the digital realm, does that potentially breed further use of publication bans to clamp down on information that's coming out of these trials? I don't doubt that that is part of the motivation of some of the people, for sure. One of the things that uh, was highlighted in my study was that many of the um, identity ban applications are by uh, third party. So they're not the person being sued or the person doing the suing. But for one reason or another, they are becoming a part of the trial, perhaps through no fault of their own or their or no decision or uh, desire of their own. And I think that is something we'll see a lot of in the future. Because as you say, uh, you know, an employer can Google and get information very easily. And uh, they might not want their name, even as an innocent witness, associated with a criminal trial. So uh, I, I don't doubt that as part of the motivation. It's a fascinating study. It's definitely worth a read for people who are concerned about transparency in our justice system. Justice in the Shadows, nationalpost.com. Adrian Humphreys, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for your interest. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Adrian Humphreys. You can find his investigation, Justice in the Shadows, at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.